to the MEC English Service Podcast. For more resources or information about our church, Mideast Evangelical Church, visit mec.church. All right, friends, um, we are going to continue along in our series. Is there like a feedback? Hum, hum. No, it's just in my head. Oh, no. I promise I didn't do that. I'm almost positive. Um, <laughs> mostly stable. Okay. So um, we are going to be continuing along in our series. Here I am. I'm going to hide behind the bushes so that I can see what I'm doing. Um, and we are going to be continuing in our series through the book of Revelation, which is, let's be real, it's like it's the weirdest book in the Bible, right? Because it has all a whole bunch of crazy linguistic devices that are used. It has a lot of like very vivid, wild images that are used. Um, and thus far, we've been doing this thing. Um, and for those of you who are just joining us, um, we've been going backwards through this thing. Um, it's kind of weird to start a book at the end and then move backwards, but that's what we've been doing. Um, because if we know how the thing ends, then that can help us inform how to live now. And in the book of Revelation, this is what we get. We get sneak previews of what, um, what John um, had in a vision of how this whole thing ends, where this whole thing is going. And so if we know where the whole thing is going, it can inform our decisions, our outlook, our hope and despair in the meantime, here and now. And so, um, quick recap for those, we, we started at chapter 22 with the river of life and trees of life and how these trees of life will bring healing to the nations, which is bring healing to the people groups, right? To the cultures, to the races, um, and that there's reconciliation and redemption through the tree of life in the end through what God does. In addition to that, we talked about um, how big this thing is. I made like a little box that fit on a globe. I think it's on YouTube. Um, but, but just how big the ending is of this story. I think sometimes we're like, cool, you go to heaven and then you get like a one-room apartment um, and then you just chill in your one-room apartment for a while and every once in a while you go to a church service. I don't know, maybe that's just like my like Baptist upbringing. Like that's what I imagined for some reason. Um, we did talk about mansions a lot though. Um, anyway, so, but, but nevertheless, it's this idea of just the main city in Revelation 21, the, the new holy Jerusalem city where God comes and dwells among people once again is about, is larger than half of the United States. Um, and then it towers into the sky outside of our atmosphere. Um, if you measure all of the dimensions. Because they measure in stadia, so if you're reading in English, you're like, oh yeah, 12,000 stadia, I totally know what that means. No, it's about, it's between like 15 and 1600 miles, right? So it's big, it's a big city. Um, and so not only is the end beautiful and bringing healing, but it's big, right? It's very, very big. And um, one of the highlights of this ending is that God dwells among us. Right, that there is a new restored order where God takes up residence among us in Revelation 21. And then last week um, in our in our bilingual service, we we talked about how um, there's this like weird passage where it talks about those who get thrown in the lake of fire. And then when we unpacked it a little, um, it, we 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 discovered a little bit about the Lamb's Book of Life and what does it mean to have your name written in the Book of Life and. Realistically, at least from Revelation 21, the only thing that you need to be in the book of life is to say, I'm thirsty to God and say, God, I want this life and I acknowledge that I need to get it from you. Um, and so if, if none of that rings a bell, you should watch the thing from last week. Um, 
And today, we are getting into um, some potentially like equally strange waters. Um, and whenever I read these passages in the book of Revelation, I automatically, um, I think about, this is actually an image um, from the Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings? Yes, um, all the nerds up in here, woot woot. Um, Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson's a, a delicious director. Um, he does really good. But the, the Lord of the Rings, um, one of the, every single one of the movies has some sort of climactic, ginormous battle scene, right? Where there are like these, these hordes of, of orcs and goblins attacking the people that are trying to like fight on the side of good against the dark forces of Mordor. Um, and whenever I read these sections of Revelation 20 and uh, or Revelation 19, I automatically think Lord of the Rings. Um, but then when I read it carefully, um, because the, the way that I was raised was like, oh, there's going to be this epic battle scene that eventually takes place. Um, when I read it carefully, I, re I realized it's a little bit different. And so let's um, go ahead and take a look at the passage for today. Revelation 20, um, 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who, declared, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Um, now talk about like, I don't know, epic confrontation, right? So you have, you have the enemy who like gathers all of these, uh, these dark forces to assault um, a city. And now if, if at first glance, I, I feel like this is, this is the default reaction. Huh? Right, if you didn't grow up around this, it's like, okay, what is going on here? First of all, um, has any of you um, been to the land of Gog or Magog? Like, okay, yes, technically. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and Gog and Magog, we do not use these words anymore, at least in modern English. And even um, if, you, if you look at a lot of like, the modern scholarship on these words, some of the scholars even debate about what this means. All, all they really are, are certain of is it's either a king or kingdoms to the north of Israel somewhere, right? It could be like far north, like Russia. It could be not as far north, like Syria. It could be, so they're just certain that it's like up there. And by up there, I mean, which way's north? Up there. Um, and so Gog and Magog, we have the four corners of the earth. Um, I have a beloved friend of mine who is one of them flat earthers um, who believe that the earth is flat. And he uses this text to be like, see? The earth is flat. The earth has four corners. Boom. Gotcha. And I'm like, uh, uh, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> there's the four corners of the earth. Um, and then you have this army that marches across the entire surface of the earth, which is like, that's kind of complicated because there's this thing called the Atlantic Ocean, right? Um, and so how does one march across the whole surface of the, like maybe they like get hover boots and they walk across the water just to like get the rest of the earth in. Um, and so if we take like a, just like first glance at this text, we see like, okay, we need to dig into this a bit more um, to really understand what's going on here. Because if we take it just at literal face value, we might be missing what was intended from this passage. And so, um, 
It's important to note that what we are reading, um, the revelation of John is an apocalypse. Um, and you might be like, apocalypse, these are types of movies where zombies um, take over the face of the earth. However, an apocalypse actually comes from the Greek word, we talked about this, apocalypsus, which means to unveil or reveal. But it's also a genre. It's a type of literature. And this type of literature, like, when you're, when you're describing any type of literature, there's usually things that you look for. How do you know a, a book is a Western? What are some things that like help you know that a book's a Western? Cowboys. cowboys, if there are cowboys present. What else? Saloons and spittoons and horses and dust. Southern accents. Ac Southern accents, yeah. Cowboys. Um, how about if you are reading poetry? How do you know it's poetry? If you don't understand it, especially if it's by E.E. E. Cummings um, or Shakespeare, let's be real. Um, okay, so you can tell, well, okay, other than if you don't understand it, how can you tell it's poetry? Okay, sometimes rhyme, yep. Meter, like iambic pentameter, da 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 Anybody, English class, flashbacks, okay. Um, so you can tell by rhyme and meter that it's poetry. So apocalypses are a genre that you can also tell that it's an apocalypse if, um, if you recognize the signs that it's an apocalypse. Um, and the way that we can tell that the book of Revelation is an apocalypse is because, well, one, because in the beginning it says, like, he uses that term. Um, but also we have a lot of other examples. And here are just two examples. We have Ezekiel 39. Wait, I said 39 to 39. Oh, my gosh. Um, in Ezekiel 39 um, and Daniel 7 through 12, I think it's 38 and 39. Both of these texts have examples of apocalypses. Um, however, outside of the Bible, we have some other examples of apocalypses. We have the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the uh, Sibylline Oracles, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, Psalms of Solomon, which you've never heard of that book before, the Assumption of Moses, the Martyrdom of Isaiah, Life of Adam and Eve, Apocalypse of Abraham, the Testament of Abraham, Second Ezra, Second Baruch, and the War Scroll from the Qumran communities. All of these are ancient examples of apocalyptic literature, and if you read them, you'd be like, whoa, that sounds like Revelation, right? There are beasts that come out of the sea with horns on their heads. There are all of these crazy features um, that like are, are uh, symbolic number seven and like these, um, these unknown names and these um, numbers that are used throughout. And so you see a lot of this stuff and so we can, we can really clearly identify, okay, the book of Revelation is like in this family of literature. And the reason I bring this up is because if we know about this family of literature, then when we read Revelation 20, we can be like, Oh, that's what he's trying to do here in this text. And so here's, um, here's some things that we know about apocalyptic literature. Sorry, I cheat by looking at the screen. Um, in apocalyptic literature, um, they use symbolic code language. And it's specifically code language because it's spoken to people who are oppressed. And when you're circulating letters among oppressed people, you don't want the oppressors to catch you, right? And so you write in code, right? This is why when... Um, when John talks about the mark of the beast and the number of the beast, he's like, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. The number of the beast is, and they, depending on the text, it's either 616 or 666, um, depending on the ancient version of the text. But he's like, he gives a clue and is like, I'm talking to you in code right now. This is the number, 
And then he repeats afterwards, I'm talking to you in code right now. Um, so that whoever that number represents, which we can debate about that later, um, isn't like in on the secret. So like, let, let's just imagine that John is writing under Nero, which he probably isn't, or Domitian, one of the oppressors. And he was like, hey, um, here is the number of the beast. It's, it's Domitian, everybody. Emperor Domitian, he's the bad guy. Then, every, then Domitian comes and sends his dudes and kills John, right? Um, so instead he's like, it's a number. Um, so this is how apocalyptic literature works. There's also, um, it's, it's written in the first century, so it's always going to be, have lots of like saturated language that talks about that context, and they recycle themes. Um, and by recycling themes, it's like, have you ever noticed when someone wants to explain something, like when you have a really good teacher, and they're like, let's see, what are atoms like? Um, and then they use some sort of metaphor. Right? They use some sort of thing that they can compare it to. And it's like, atoms are not like Lego blocks, but in some ways they're kind of like Lego blocks. So let me tell you about Lego blocks so that you can understand atoms and then later we can unpack what it really means. Like you recycle previous knowledge so that the thing that you're talking about can make sense. And this is what happens in apocalyptic literature. I bet you didn't know you were signing up for genre class today. Um, so the only reason I bring this up is because with this, we can now understand what's the deal with Gog and Magog. This goes all the way back to the book of Ezekiel. Um, and in that book of Ezekiel, um, Gog and Magog is like the symbolic representation of the enemies of God and God's people, right? That the, the enemy is going to gather these people um, and use them to fight against God's people, right? That there are armies to the north that can be leveraged for the power of evil. Um, and also, um, some, by the way, Gog is sometimes, um, some scholars think that Gog is the king of the place called Magog. And then there's also in Ezekiel, there's this like, this prediction, or not in Ezekiel, in first century apocalyptic understanding, there was an idea that there'd be a huge conversion to Judaism, because this was before Christianity existed, that there'd be a huge conversion followed by a huge apostasy, meaning a, a huge group of people that would leave after that huge conversion. And so John, when he writes in this context, he's like, this is what people expect of the end. And so I'm gonna use these images and these metaphors to be able to say, look, this is what it's gonna look like when God finally wins. Even if all of the people who have turned against God um, mount together a, an, an attack against God and God's people, Here's what happens in that battle. This is what John is trying to set up in this scene. And what happens in this battle um, is um, an epic battle scene against the enemy. And I think what's important to note here is that the true enemy in the book of Revelation, um, as you go through, is not the people who are doing bad things. But you'll notice that the enemy that constantly gets referenced is either some symbolic representation of the devil, whether it's the dragon or the beast, or they just come out and say, Satan. The enemy, the enemy is not the people that get deceived by Satan. The enemy is Satan himself. And I know it's like a weird, like, weird thing, like, hey, we're gathering outside, let's talk about Satan. Um, but I think it's really important that we note, um, and I think that we can all attest to the fact that there is darkness in this world, right? That there is brokenness, that there is evil. I don't know if any of you, like, maybe you don't watch the news because it's too sad. Um, 
but like, or, or I guess social media is just as bad. Um, but have you ever like heard that something happened and then you're like, how could something like this happen? Like, how could the world get this jacked up? Right? How could people make that bad of decisions? Um, and I think that not even just in apocalyptic literature, but in, um, in Paul's writings, he talks about, yes, we, we do have an enemy that is not flesh and blood. Right? And this enemy like, works against the light for the sake of darkness. Right? And not only does this enemy work like that, but he, he uses our own like, drawnness to darkness to, to further his plans. So it's important to note that our true enemy is not that person who's doing the evil thing. But our true enemy is the evil spirit, the evil power, the evil forces in this world, the evil ideas and concepts in this world that drive people to do those sorts of things. Right, to do the unthinkable. Right, that, that check inside of us that says, oh, that's just not right. Um, that, that is God, that is light reminding us like, hey, that's not what we were designed to do, but so, much, so many times like, it just becomes normal that that like, type of darkness happens. So in this text, we get that our true enemy is the guy who, um, or the force that goes and gather. Oh, am I gonna? How about you mute everything except for channel two? Maybe that'll help, sorry. Thanks. Um, okay, so our true enemy um, is important to realize. And so um, in the text, it talks about the enemy gathering and deceiving all of the nations and then preparing all of those nations and, and preparing all of those those people um, to do the messed up thing. But in the end, who wins? Spoilers. God, good. And when God wins, um, he throws the enemy into the lake of fire, the, the, the burning lake of sulfur, depending on your translation. Um, but in this text, we actually get like a really cool little glimpse at the heart of God, which I think is weird to be like, oh, it's a fight with the devil and there's um, hell is there. Um, but we get a glimpse at the heart of God because who is the lake of fire designed and intended for? It's intended and designed for Satan. The lake of fire is designed to punish um, and, and bring justice to Satan for his rebellion against God and for deceiving the peoples into wanting to follow him as well. Hell was never designed for people, right? This was not God's original intent. And I think that sometimes we even get this like weird, probably from cartoons. I remember a lot of cartoons did this. We get this idea that, say, that hell is this place and Satan is the king of that place, right? It's his kingdom. It's his domain um, where Satan is like, I am the king and you guys, I'm going to do mean things to you. But that's actually false. Hell is a place that Satan doesn't want to go, right? Hell is a place that evil does not want to go because it does not want to be burned and annihilated, and so this fire does not belong to Satan. The fire actually belongs to God, and it's for Satan. It's for evil. It's for darkness and brokenness, and it was never designed for you or your classmates or your friends or your coworkers or that person who tripped you on the street or that guy who cut you off in his Bugatti um, or like whoever it was. Like It wasn't designed for that person. It was designed for the embodiment of evil itself. And the sad tragedy, right, is that 
some people are like, I'm with that guy. And they go with him there. Right? So it's not like God, I think that this is an important note, that like, it's not like God designed hell and was like, I want to send a lot of people there. This is not God's will. This is why scripture tells us that God does not want anyone to perish. Right? God doesn't want anyone um, to lose. But rather, he wants everyone to live. And this is why last week we talked about the Lamb's Book of Life. He's like, hey, it's as easy. It's as easy as saying, I'm thirsty, God, I don't want that. And God's like, I got you, right? Um, and so the fire wasn't, I got a mosquito that's in love with me. Um, <laughs> there's a, the, the fire was never intended for us. And so how does this epic battle scene play out where, where Satan and all of his forces that he has gotten on board with him, where, how does it all play out? And um, I remember talking to a missionary down in Nicaragua one time, and he's like, dude, I'm so ready for the Battle of Armageddon, because that's what it was called. Um, and he's like, I'm going to like have a sword, and I'm going to take dudes out. And I'm like, I don't know if it looks like that, right? Because um, when we read this text, if you look closely at the text that we read, um, there's actually not really any fighting. It's like the armies gather to attack God and his people, and then just like fire rains down, end of battle. Like it's the most anticlimactic battle scene. Imagine in like Lord of the Rings when those huge um, armies gather around Helm's Deep. Um, I realize only four of you have seen this. So the four of you, you're tracking with me right now. Um, and all of these um, soldiers are gathered around Helm's Deep and then all of a sudden just like fire rains down from heaven, boom, end of scene. Like two minute battle. Huzzah. Um, and that's what we get in Revelation chapter 20. Um, we also have another version of this because Revelation likes to repeat itself so that make, to make sure that people get the message. Revelation 19. Um, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So again the embodiment of evil, the beast, right? And all of the people the beast deceived. The two of them were thrown in alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Ew. Um, but in this scene, it's not fire that rains down from heaven, but like this dude on a white horse does this um, and a sword comes out and that one sword kills everybody. So either way, in these battles where evil is defeated... It's not like a bunch of people fighting a bunch of people, but it's God being like, hey, um, all y'all who love evil and are fighting on behalf of evil, the end, opens his mouth, the end, right? It's not actually a battle. And I think especially in our world, um, it's really easy to think that there is a powerful force called good and there's an equally powerful force called evil and they're duking it out. They're fighting it out to see who's gonna win. But the truth is, is that there's God, and then there's everything else. And God is the one who's like, okay, um, we're done. Opens his mouth, sword. Or, okay, we're done, fire. It's not a fair fight between good and evil. But rather, good will win. This is like, as the song, as the, song the girl sang, grace will win, right? Grace wins every time that that God, um, in his goodness, will be like, okay, evil, if, if you want evil, like, this is where it goes. And those who do not want it, all you, all you have to be is thirsty, and you're rescued forever. Um, and so, naturally, so God wins. I, I get it, right? Like, cool. And? 
Like it's an, another each of these things. It's kind of like okay, why are we talking about the end um, and how like there's this epic battle where evil gets defeated? Like why? Right? What do we do with this? How can this action? Like, why is this in a book that's supposed to help me connect with God and understand how to live? Um, and I think that there's three really important principles um, that we can extract from this. One um, is that we need to remember who is, whoa, that got weird. Sorry, my slide design got all weird. Um, we need to remember who is the enemy. Who is the enemy and who is not the enemy. Um, that, this is why I spent so long harping on who hell was designed for and, and who is the person in Revelation that, that people are fighting against, because it's not a person. Um, it's the embodiment of evil itself. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not that bully at school. Our enemy is not a political leader. Our enemy is not, um, is not someone who has a family and walks around here on earth. Our enemy, our enemy is evil itself. Our enemy is sin. Our enemy is darkness. Our enemy is the devil, right? And that darkness and that sin and Satan want to persuade people that other people are their enemy. But they are not the enemy. Like other people, if anything, they are the hostage, right? And so when we take shots at other people and we're like, they are like, they're what's wrong with this world. If they were just dead um, or they're a, a messed up person, I wish they were gone. When we say these types of words, we're shooting at the hostage, not at the true enemy. So with this, like if we're gonna figure out how to live here and now, remember who the enemy is and don't shoot the hostage. Um, another thing that we can take from this um, is to choose for yourself which of those armies you want to be a part of. I think that God in his grace is like, hey, here's how it ends. Um, this whole thing ends um, and, and I win um, because I, I want good to continue. Um, I don't want evil to win and this is not what I intended for you all. And so we know the ending and this is actually God's grace to us to be like, this is where it ends. Okay, now choose. Like, God doesn't force us, and he's not like, okay, this is where it ends, and so, therefore, all of you have to follow me. But he still says, so it's in your court. Do you want to be my kids? Do you want to follow me? Do you want to, do you want to drink of the living water that I'm giving away for free? Um, do you want to accept this gift of life that I'm literally handing out for free? Like, everything that you thought you might need to do to earn this, I've done it for you. Would you like it? But that, that's as far as he goes. He says, I've done it all. Would you like it? Would you like to be on the winning team? Would you like to know that you have like, healing and wholeness and redemption set away for you in the future? But you don't have to. It's your choice. So choose for yourself. Um, at the end of the book of Joshua, um, after they do all these crazy like, conquesty things, um, he says to them, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves on this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so the first thing is remember who the enemy is. It's not other people. The second thing is you guys got a choice. Choose. Who are you going to serve? And then the last thing is um, 
there are a lot of other people in this world who have chosen the wrong side. Um, they've chosen destruction. They've chosen death. They've chosen brokenness. They've chosen um, patterns, addictions, behaviors, things that destroy them. And so maybe you're like, cool, those first two points are really easy because I love everyone um, and, uh, and, I've, and I've chosen God. But maybe for you, the thing you need to remember is that there's a lot of people who have been deceived. Like both in the passage in, in Revelation 19 and in 20, the reason that those other nations are following the devil is because they've been deceived, right? They've been tricked. And there's so much in this world that tricks us that wants to trick us into following darkness, into following destruction, into following evil. And so even if you are free from this, I think if you love those people, it is your responsibility to help other people be, get undeceived, to throw out the, the life ring, to say, hey, let me, let me help you get free of this. Let me help save you. And, and when we do this, I, I, I think of Jesus's words. He's like, hey, when you go out into the world, I want you to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as snakes, but, like, but smart and wise as snakes. And I think that there is, um, when we go and we try to help other people get undeceived, we, we do two things. One, um, the innocent as doves piece is that we are, we are vulnerable. We have a soft heart towards other people. Um, that we reach out to people who are deceived because we love them and we care about them deeply. But with that soft heart, we also need to have a strong spine. Right? Something that is able to hold us up and stand up and say, but I know what truth is. And because I know what truth is, please, let me help you. Let me help you see what truth is. I remember watching a, I think I showed this to um, Team Awesome a couple of years ago, um, but there's an interview with Penn Gillette. He's a famous um, magician. Um, and this magician, he is an, he's an outspoken atheist. Um, and he talked about this one time, there was a guy who like gave him a Bible after a show. Um, and he said, even though I'm an atheist, I respect people who try to, to he, said, he uses the word proselytize, but people who try to speak the gospel to him. And he says, because if you believe that there is a God and there is a hell and you don't want to talk to me about it because it's like awkward or something, how much do you have to hate me to not tell me about it? And this is from an atheist dude, right? Like, he's like, how much do you have to hate me to like, know that I'm like, dece deceived and convinced and going somewhere that's going to be awful, but then be like, it's too awkward. I don't want to talk to him about it. And so this is why, because of how we know this thing ends, with a soft heart and a strong spine, with, with vulnerability, like being completely vulnerable but strong, we say, I love you so much. Like, let's talk about Let's talk about where you're at in life. Let's talk about where you put your trust. Let's talk about what, what are the most important things to you in your life, right? And because we care about other human beings, we can then be like, um, we can then have the strong spine and stand up for what is good and hopefully un undeceive people, convince people of the truth. But we need to have both of those realities in us, right? That we are not just like going out with signs and telling people that they're wrong and they're gonna burn forever. Um, but rather that we are soft and we say, I love you and I care about you. 
And when you're in that place, you can say, and so let me help you know the truth. This is where the story is going, right? Um, and I think um, it's either this week or next week, might be the last week of this series, and just in case you're like, when are we gonna stop talking about dragons and fire? Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I cannot skip over this chunk of the text because it's too important, right? Especially in a world where it seems like darkness and evil might be winning. We need to be anchored in the truth that eventually evil will be extinguished and good will win and that all of us are, partic are invited to participate in that good. So let's take a moment to um, pray just before we close up with a final song if the worship band wants to head on up for this last song. Um, just go ahead and I would invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Um, and just spend a couple of um, seconds talking to God. I mean, the first things first. I know, I know we're in a church where a lot of us have been following Jesus our entire lives, but I think it's important just to, to check yourself, right? And say, hey, um, whose side am I on? Have I accepted the free gift? Have I been thirsty enough to ask for the free water of life? Have I wanted God to be my God. Take a moment to just check yourself um, and ask the Lord, hey, have I given you my heart? Have I given you my life? And if the answer to that is no or I don't know, um, I would invite you just to say a quick prayer just in the silence of your heart right now. Just to say, God, I want that free water. God, I want life. God, I want goodness. And for those of you who have already chosen that, those of you who have said, yes, I've chosen the Lord, I want you to think of the people in your lives who haven't. Friends at school, in the workplace. Allow their faces, their names um, to come to your mind. And with their with these people in the front of your mind, I want you to join me in prayer. God, we ask that you would give us both the courage and strength and the empathy and love to care about people who are lost and deceived. God, people who have said no to a free gift, people who don't know the way that this story ends. God, and we ask for the boldness and the courage to have conversations about you, about life, about death, about all of the things that we as humans actually deeply care about in our souls. And God, when there are those people in our lives who we feel hardened to, who we don't feel empathy for, who we have trouble loving, God, I pray that you 
would soften our hearts and remind us that they are not the enemy. That they are the deceived, not the deceiver. And that we would extend a hand of love to them. God, we pray for your strength and guidance in all of this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.